We're in a new series called Step Goals, and we are this morning trying to figure out how we can better walk with Jesus on a daily basis. The message this morning is about the pace setter himself. Luke chapter 2. In the history of the Indianapolis 500, there have been exactly 100 pace cars that started the race. Now, in my mind, one of the most unique of all the pace cars uh, was the 1925 Rickenbacker. The car was named for Eddie Rickenbacker, who you see behind the wheel in the picture, who, uh, by the way, um, had raced in the 500 for four times uh, prior to leaving in World War I, who became our nation's leading ace during that time. What most people don't realize is that Eddie Rickenbacker in 1927 bought the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and owned it until 1945. I think that's kind of an interesting story. My favorite pace car of all the hundred a 1956 DeSoto. And you say, why would the 56 DeSoto be my favorite? It's because the 1956 DeSoto was our family car, the first one I remember. This week I spoke by phone to a Mr. Davidson at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway Museum. And here's what I found to be interesting in our conversation. The, the transition of a pace car was likely pioneered by that very first 500 in 1911. Prior to that, auto races, they weren't many, but they were gaining in popularity by, by 1911. All auto races began from a standing start. But since there were 40 cars that qualified for that first 500, track president Carl Fisher believed it would be safer to lead the cars around the track from the starting line, get them up to speed, and as they crossed that starting line for the beginning of the race, they'd be traveling at about 50 miles an hour. Now, that's how it's been done ever since. It's safer to have a pace setter. What's true of racing is also true of life. We are not so good at a standing start. We always do better if we can follow someone who will set the pace for life down the road. Now, folks, that's the whole concept behind mentoring. An older, more experienced, and hopefully wiser adult can often help set the pace for a younger adult just starting out, potentially helping them, saving them from a world of hurt and from reckless beginnings. That's also the concept behind life groups, that together we can pace the race for all of us. And spiritually speaking, I can think of no better pace setter than Jesus himself. His wisdom his experience teaches us truths that will help us avoid lousy choices, a world of hurt, and some reckless beginnings. You see, he, he's, just, he's just the best model ever for my step goals. So let me ask you again this week. How's your walk with Jesus? Uh, you know, I think it would be interesting to find out how far Jesus actually walked in his 33-year ministry. A fellow by the name of Arthur Blessed has spent an inordinate amount of time studying that very thing and has figured out that if you take all of the history of traveling back and forth for festivals in Jerusalem and all the other journeys that Jesus may have made in his 33 years, that Jesus likely walked 21,525 miles in his 33-year lifetime. Now, to put that into perspective, to the distance around the earth at the equator, is 24,901.5 miles. So Jesus walked nearly the distance around the earth at the equator in his 33 years 
of ministry in just traveling from place to place. That doesn't count his ordinary steps. I know from wearing a Fitbit, I don't travel to any place by foot, but I rack up a whole lot of steps just in the everyday living. If you combined all of that together, imagine how many steps Jesus left in this world. And you say, wow, I want to I wanna walk like Jesus walked. Well, that doesn't mean putting on a pair of sandals, donning a robe, making a trip to Israel, and walking where Jesus walked. It's not about the where. It's about the how he lived his life and what was important to him. Last week, I shared this verse out of 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Now, even John's choice of the word walk here is, is is unique and significant. It means not just walking or plodding along. It means following, making progress, or conducting oneself after the pattern of another person. When, when John says, walk like Jesus walk, he means you become a good follower, a good imitator, a good emulator of the qualities of the life of Jesus Christ. In other words, our spiritual step goal is to emulate the pattern of life we find in Jesus himself. So where do we begin on our quest to know who Jesus is? Well, we're going to talk about a whole lot of things. But we're going to be begin with a, with a story from his youth. The only story we have from his youth. Between his birth and the beginning of his earthly ministry, at the age of 30, we have but one story about his youth. And you say, why one? And, and how did it get there? Well, I don't think Luke was having writer's block one day and said, I just can't think of anything to write about Jesus. I know, I'll tell that story when he was 12 years old. There are so many details left out of the scripture that we would like to know, that there isn't room to write about. So they chose carefully what stories they would include. This is not a random accidental story. There's something for us to learn. There's something of value in this story. And Luke begins the story in chapter 2, verse 41, and this is what we read. Every year his, being Jesus, every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the feast according to the custom. Now at the time of our story, a 12-year-old Jewish boy was expected to keep the law, to learn a trade, and to attend the great Jewish festivals. There were three mandatory feasts and festivals. And of those mandatory ones, Passover was at the climax of the Jewish spiritual calendar. There just wasn't a greater day in Jerusalem than the celebration of Passover. As a poor family in Nazareth, they likely traveled to the city as a group. Maybe they traveled with other family members. Maybe they traveled with people from the community, but that would have made the trip a lot more economical. It would have also made the trip a lot safer. You travel in a group in that day and time, you're going to be a lot safer. Not to mention all the social uh, enjoyment out of it. It's just a lot more fun to travel with other people. And as they approached the city of Jerusalem, as all of the people coming for the worship would have been doing, as they got close to climbing that hill up to the city of Jerusalem, they began to sing the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120 through 134. And what an, an, an extraordinary experience that must have been for the 12-year-old Jesus. Now, he might have been in Jerusalem at other times, but at 12 years of age, this was his first time to be in the temple. 
It would have been his first glimpse at the temple money changers, the ceremonial washings, the crowds that exceeded 200,000 worshipers. For a boy from the sleepy town of Nazareth, that would have been a lot to take in. It would have also been his first introduction to the whole concept of sacrifice. Literally thousands upon thousands of lambs were sacrificed there in that time in preparation for the Passover. And it was hearkening back 1,400 years to when Moses had told the people, the slaves in Egypt, mark your doorposts and the lintel with the blood of the lamb, and death will pass over you. Can you not imagine the mind of Jesus just spinning as fast as it could, taking it all in? I wonder if as he saw the sacrifices taking place, there was the flash of a cross that passed through his mind. Because as he had come to Jerusalem, he probably saw the hillsides dotted with Roman crucifixion. Did his hands tingle at the thought of a Roman spike being driven into his wrists? Did he flinch every time he heard a lamb bleat as it was sacrificed? Luke goes on in verse 43. After the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled for a day. Then they began to look for him among their relatives and friends. And when they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Now, if we translate Luke's words literally, it says, when the days had been completed. I think that's significant. The whole Passover feast would have lasted seven days. But the Jewish worshiper was only required to stay for three of those days. If you're poor, and Mary and Joseph and the family was, many people from Nazareth were. They would have only stayed for three. It would have been a lot cheaper to stay for three days than the whole seven when you're out of town. And so probably after the third day, they started back. They travel for a whole day. It's not until perhaps the next day that they discover Jesus isn't with them. So they pack everything up. They make another day's journey back. And that would have been on the sixth day that they would have found him, the sixth day of the Passover. Now, here's the deal. While you only were required to stay for three, the, the leaders and the teachers and the chief priests and the scribes and all, the, all of those folks stayed around all seven days in the temple courts preaching and teaching. So when they come back into town and they find Jesus in the midst of that kind of teaching environment, it was still while the Passover was going on. And I love this story. It's one of those three-day stories again. Did you notice that? After three days, they found him. Day one, there's panic. He's missing. Day two, we don't know where he is. There's no knowledge. Day three, they make it back. They find him. They found their son alive again. A three-day story. Do you realize how many three-day stories there are throughout Scripture that keep pointing us to the glory of the resurrection? I love this story. I love this story for a lot of reasons. I find it encouraging to realize that Mary and Joseph goofed up as parents, for one thing. Do you realize this? They assume that Jesus is, 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 is in the midst. Mary doesn't ask. Joseph doesn't ask. They aren't talking together. They just assume. And they get a whole day's down the road, a journey, and they realize he's not with them. It wouldn't have been unusual for a young man of his age to be palling around with the other young men that were on the trip. I get why they did. But it is, it is so encouraging to know that when we drop the ball as a family, Jesus didn't grow up in a perfect family either. 
His earthly parents made mistakes. They dropped the ball. They just had to pick it up and go on, all right? So I love it about the fact that Jesus grew up in a home where they made mistakes as well. Now, Jesus was perfect without sin, but his parents were not that way. His earthly parents were not that way. Doesn't excuse us, by the way, from doing our best as parents and grandparents. It's just comforting to know that we're not alone when we drop the ball. So when you drop the ball, pick it up and keep going, all right? Luke chapter 2, verse 47, it goes on. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. That's what, there was the key. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he said. Didn't you know I had to be about in my father's house about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was trying to say to them. Asking and answering questions was a common approach to teaching in that day and time. That was the way people learned. That was the educational process. That Jesus was asking questions, that's not a problem. That, I mean, that, that's just understood. That's not the surprise. The surprise is that his answers were astonishing and astounding to the teachers who knew the law the best. Jerusalem would have been the place where the best teachers were located. And here they are gathered in a circle, Jesus in the midst of them, and his answers are the best answers. Mary's response is typical of any mother. What are you doing to us, Jesus? We have been painfully, that's what the word means, painfully looking for you. It'd be a typical parental response, but this is not a typical family moment. This, this is a pivotal moment in the earthly journey of Jesus. I'll tell you, it was certainly a pivotal moment for the priests and the scribes and the teachers uh, in the temple with him. Annas would have been high priest at this time. I can't imagine having a young man of 12 whose answers and questions astounded the best of the best for somebody not to go and say to the high priest, you got to come hear this kid from Nazareth. Come on. And it would be 21 years later that Annas would lead the charge to have Jesus crucified. Did he remember this boy whose answers confounded even his own understanding? It was a pivotal moment for him. It would have been a pivotal moment for Joseph's walk as well. I mean, 12 years have passed since the birth of Jesus. Things kind of grow fuzzy in 12 years. You kind of get into a routine. But then he overhears Mary say to Jesus, your dad and I were really worried about you. And Jesus said, didn't you know where to find me? Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He was in no carpenter shop. He wasn't carving an oak for some pair of oxen at that time. He was in the temple. It must have hit Joseph like a lightning bolt. The words of the angel must come flooding back into his mind about this being the very son of God. It was a pivotal moment for Joseph. It was a pivotal moment for Mary. She was frantic. Jesus wasn't. She was a wreck. Jesus was calm. She was out of control. Jesus was in control. And when she was finally able to step back and begin to grasp what had just happened, Luke wrote that she treasured up all these things in her heart. She remember, She tucked these away because she knew somehow, some way, all these moments would be important. It wouldn't be until after the resurrection that she really grasped the meaning until all the pieces came together. And maybe, maybe, 
just maybe, it was a pivotal moment in the spiritual walk of the Apostle Paul. And some of you are saying, Paul? Well, Paul doesn't come along till after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. How could this be a pivotal moment in the walk of the Apostle Paul? Do you like to speculate? Do you like to conjecture? Do you mind if I do? Will you, will you give me a few minutes to just speculate with you? This may be totally off base. This may be the strangest thing I have ever said in all my years of preaching. Now I've got your attention, don't I? Now you're listening. <laughs> well, let's just, let's just pretend for a minute. Let's just speculate based on what we know. Th- there might be something, might be something else going on here in Jerusalem that's really unique. Luke is the only gospel writer to tell this story, first of all. You know, Matthew, Mark, and John do not include this story. Where, where would Luke have learned this story? You know, Luke traveled. He was a Gentile, traveled as a doctor with the apostle Paul on all the missionary trips. Maybe, maybe Paul told him this story, and Luke said, I've got to put this one in my gospel account. We know from the book of Acts that Paul, who at that time as a boy was Saul, born in the city of Tarsus, a Roman city, but educated in Jerusalem, that young Saul... He had a sister and a nephew that lived in Jerusalem. So it's conceivable that he also had other relatives in Jerusalem. The Bible says that even though he was born in a Roman city, he was educated in Jerusalem. So probably, probably about the age of 12, he goes to Jerusalem to start studying under the best. And he had the best teacher. He tells us it was Gamaliel, a famous, well-known teacher at that time. By the way, historians also tell us that Paul and Jesus were born in the very same time period. Who knows? Maybe they were born the very same year, which would have made them 12 at the same time, which would have put Saul of Tarsus in Jerusalem for the Passover at the feet of his teacher Gamaliel. Now, we also know from Paul in his own writings, before his name was changed to Paul, we know that he was... Boy, he, you talk about competitive. He wanted to be the best of the best. He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He wanted to be, I think when, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem to study, it was his determined goal to be the top of the class, to be at the head of the class. He wanted to be the favorite of the teachers, and he adored Gamaliel. And so here he is. He's in the limelight. He's the top student in the class. And then one day, one day, this country kid from Nazareth shows up in the temple, and suddenly all the limelight shifts to him. And they're fascinated by his teaching and by his questions and by his answers. And all of a sudden, poor, poor Saul is left in the dust. And Saul never forgets this. And 21 years later, when the church begins, he is determined to stamp out this following of this Jesus, the kid from Nazareth who came and humiliated his teacher and put him in the limelight, who made him feel little. By the way, the name Paul means little. Don't know. This may be the strangest thing ever. There, this, Paul may be laughing in heaven right now as I tell this story about that silly preacher in Bloomington telling this kind of story. I, I don't know. But it's, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that when Jesus crosses any person's life or path, it just is a pivotal moment. It makes all the difference. This is no accidental or random story. At this moment, Jesus realizes his calling. He understands his true identity. He grasps his parentage, and he begins to grasp his role in the future redemption of mankind. It was a turning point for all concerned. 
might be for us as well. Now, out of every story, there, there come there come lessons for us. And out of this story, there come some lessons for all of us this morning. And, and the first one is simply this. Share good news. I got lots of questions about this event. Where did Jesus stay at, the, at night for those, those days when his mom and dad weren't there? Who fed him? You know, um, did anyone send word? Was there sort of an amber alert in Jerusalem that somebody was sent out on the road to try and track down Mary and Joseph and say, hey, you left your boy in Jerusalem? I got all kinds of questions. But my, my best questions, my biggest questions are, what did they talk about? What was the discussion, the conversation that was going on in the temple? Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that circle to hear what they were saying and what Jesus was answering? I'm here to tell you, I don't know what they were, but they were the best answers because they were answers of good news. When Jesus began his earthly ministry, the, the crowds, the multitudes thronged to hear Jesus because, because they loved what he had to say. When one community tried to persuade him to stay on for quite a while, Jesus said this in Luke chapter 4, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns also because that is why I was sent. He had good news, and it wasn't just for one group. It was for everybody. He had a job to get that good news spread. It's no wonder people loved Jesus. They loved to hear him speak. They loved to hear him teach. He had good news. You see, in a day of foreign domination and control by Rome, terrorists attacked throughout the city, bitter rivalries and contentious class envy, the multitudes were hungry for some good news. Jesus always gave them the truth. Sometimes it was painful truth. Sometimes it was difficult truth. But the truth always bore out good news. You know, I look at what was happening in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, and I kind of look at what's happening in our world today, and I, boy, there's just a lot of similarities when you stop and think about it. I, I got to tell you, I'm already tired of the news for 2017. And we're only halfway through January, folks. Are, are you ready for this? Now, some of these may be based on averages. Some of them, I know, are, are based on what has actually happened. But in America, during the first 13 days of this year, over 21,300 people have died from heart disease, and nearly 1,200 have died at the hands of a drunk driver. There were 1,485 suicides and 583 homicides in the first 13 days of this year. In our country during these first 13 days, 96 people died of malnutrition, 51 from domestic violence, and three were the result of lightning strikes. Already this year, there have been 11 mass shootings resulting in 56 casualties. One need not look far for bad news. It was that way 2,000 years ago. It's that way now. It'll be that way in the future. History just doesn't change much. This is why people are longing to discover good news. And that's why what we have to share as Christians is as important today as when Jesus was preaching 2,000 years ago. It was good news then. It is good news today. It is a message of hope that overrides the negativity and brokenness of this world. 
Just think, Christian, just think what we have in Jesus Christ. You may be struggling financially, but in Christ, we are rich in his promise to provide our daily needs. You may feel alone in this world, but in Christ, you have his presence and the presence of his global family, the church. Your body may be wearing out, but in Christ, your spirit is being renewed day by day. Our culture may be divided by racial and political tension, but in Christ, you are my brother or my sister, regardless of the color of your skin, the culture of your birth, the language that you know best, or the politics that you embrace. Here's the bottom line. We are all sinners. That levels the playing field completely. But in Christ, we can be forgiven, given hope, and a forward promise that eternity is on its way. And if that isn't the best news ever, I don't know what is. On the gray and gloomy days in this broken world, just remember, we are a people of good news. So don't hold back. Give your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers who are hurting a reason to look up. Tell them that they too can walk with Jesus daily and he'll make their journey worthwhile. This is who I want our congregation to be. That kind of good news people. People helping people grow generations of Christ-led influencers. You see, I can't change anybody. But I can influence somebody else with the good news as Jesus Christ leads us forward. Will you too be a good news influencer. So when you find yourself surrounded by people who couldn't find a positive thought in a room full of sunshine and apple pie, here's what I want you to do. I want you to share some good news. And, and, and you need to get their attention. Here's some simple ways to get their attention. Okay? You want people to know you've got good news? Here. Celebrate as much as you can. Celebrate as much as you can. A family member has a baby? Celebrate. You get a tax refund, celebrate. Your friend gets a raise, celebrate. You stay awake through a whole sermon, celebrate. <laughs> Use any reason to celebrate because people love celebrations. It will attract their attention. Smile as much as you can. Watch something that will make you chuckle. Read something funny. Spend time laughing with other people. You already know it takes fewer face muscles to smile than it does to frown. God wants us to rejoice in the good news. This past week, Elsie and I taught uh, the grandkids a song that we hadn't thought about for a long time. It's a little song, you can smile when you can't say a word. You can smile when you cannot be heard. You can smile when it's cloudy or fair. You can smile anytime, anywhere. I'll tell you, you cannot sing that song without smiling. Smile as much as you can. Be as positive as you can. If you can interpret something two different ways, choose the better way of the two. Give people the benefit of the doubt. Before getting frustrated, ask yourself if it's worth letting go of the joy in order to nurse a grudge or to feed a hurt. When you are positive, People will want to know why. When you celebrate, people will want to know why. When you're smiling all the time, people will want to know why. That opens the door for you to share good news. <laughs> will people always appreciate it? Mm. I read about a man who passed a woman daily. 
teach on the, she had a little table set up, sort of like a lemonade stand, only she was trying to supplement her income. She was selling cookies for 50 cents a piece. He was, he was so touched by her efforts to take the bull by the horns, to try and, and get ahead, that every day he walked by her table, he would drop 50 cents on the table, but he wouldn't take a cookie. This went on for months on one Friday. She stopped and she said, I'd, I'd like to talk to you. And he smiled and says, I know. You want to know why I put down 50 cents and don't take a cookie, right? And she said, no, not really. She said, I just wanted you to know that starting Monday, the cookies are a dollar. <laughs> Will people always appreciate good news? No, they won't always appreciate it. Give it anyway. Do good things anyway. Act right anyway because you're not doing it for people's appreciation. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do and it will point them to Jesus Christ and it will help them catch a glimpse of eternity and it will start their walk with the pace setter himself. Here's the last thing. Set your priorities. Look how the story ends. In verse 51 it says, Then he went down to Nazareth with them and he, Jesus, was obedient to them, his parents. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and men. Do you see that? Here's how you set your priorities. Pray for and grow in wisdom. Wisdom comes from God. It's the ability to use what you have and what you know to the best spiritual advantage. Think of wisdom as godly, common sense. Pray for it and grow in it. And pray for and grow in favor with God. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, it's simple for me to state. It's just a challenge for us to do it. Be obedient and be faithful to God. Do what he says and do it faithfully. That's how you build favor with God. Martin Luther King Jr. said, in his magnanimous love, God freely offers to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Our humble and open-hearted acceptance is faith. Growing in favor with God begins with a simple step of faith to obey and to do so faithfully. And then pray for and grow in favor with others. Work hard at getting along with others. Don't be obnoxious or arrogant or judgmental. No one is interested in hearing the good news from a grouch. Be honest, but be lovingly so. Be kind but be uncompromisingly so. Grow in favor with others so that they will see the good news alive in you and long to know the Savior with whom you walk every day. I don't know about you, but I'm not capable of making a good start on my own. That's why I need a pace setter to get me going. And the only one that's worth following is Jesus. Walk with him daily. And he'll set the pace for you, too.